according to John, the third chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having been growing old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, Testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Sisters, brothers, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Today is Holy Trinity Sunday, which, for better or worse, has the distinction of being the only day on the church calendar which is not set aside for the observance of an event, like last week, Pentecost Sunday, that the event of the of the uh, fire, the tongues of fire descending. Holy Trinity Sunday is the only day set aside for the observance of a doctrine. The uniquely Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity. A doctrine which lies beneath the Christian assertion that there is one God, there's absolutely one God. We do not believe in more than one God. And yet, nevertheless, that one God has acted for us and been made known to us in three different ways. Those three ways being spoken of most frequently as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those were three ways being spoken of, sometimes less gender specifically, in ways like Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, who, while one and only one God with each other, are nevertheless God in three persons, distinct as persons from each other. The doctrine of the Trinity came into being in the Christian church not because the word Trinity is found in the Bible. It is not, not even once. It is rather a word that was invented because it was realized that a word that didn't exist was needed in order to describe some things and even begin to try to make sense of some things that are, in fact, 
in Luke 1, for example, where the angel Gabriel says to the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and so the Holy One to be born from you will be called the Son of God. Or Matthew 28, where Jesus at the end of his ministry says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or 2 Corinthians, where Paul's farewell words to the Corinthians are the words, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or last week's Pentecost Sunday gospel text, for example, and Jesus' farewell words to his disciples in John 14 before he died, and when after saying that he himself would be leaving them, he then said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, the Spirit of Truth, to help you and be with you forever. Or this week's text that I just read from John 3, where Jesus just confuses the Bejeebers out of Nicodemus, a sincere seeker, an educated religious teacher who doesn't have a clue what Jesus is talking about when he tells him that no one can see God and the kingdom of God unless he is born again, sometimes it's translated, or born from above, the NRSV translates it. But he says, isn't something any of us can personally accomplish, any more than you personally accomplished being born the first time, but is rather accomplished in us by the work of the Holy Spirit, who works to create in us faith in a Father God who so loved the world that he gave his Son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. None of those passages use the word Trinity. But the early Christians did decide that a word like that, a word that simply didn't yet exist, was needed to describe something that the Christian scriptures do say. Which that is that though God certainly is one and only one God, God has still been active in the world and actively loving the world and actively knowable in some ways by the world in three different ways. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier. And so was created a brand new word, Trinity, Triunity, smooched together. To refer to a truth that the words of Scripture do say in all kinds of places. And that is that you can't talk about the fullness of God's godness without using the numbers one and the numbers three simultaneously. The math of which, of course, ultimately makes no sense, right? I mean, one plus one plus one equals one, which equals three, which equals one. Mathematically, this makes zero sense. Wits actually kind of makes sense, right? Because, of course, what we're talking about is the fullness of God's godness. Which, if that ultimately fully makes some sense in our little brains, we are most certainly not talking about the fullness of God's godness. That said, though I think it does make sense that pondering the fullness of God's godness inevitably leads us to places that, that in the mere human brain can't be made sense of. I mean, it just has to be that way. There have historically been some kind of 
sensical ways that Christians have talked about ways in which we can and actually often routinely do talk entirely understandably about freeness and oneness at the very same time. These ways being entirely understandable as of course also means by definition I think that they have limits in terms of how far they can be applied to the simultaneous oneness and threeness of God and God's full Godness. But having limits doesn't mean they aren't helpful. It just means that in using them you have to remember that they are metaphors and similes, not mathematical certainties. As, for example, the, the simile of saying that God is like a triangle. One single triangle nevertheless in its singleness has three distinct sides, three distinct faces, if you will, all of which can be seen separately and distinctly or as part of something one. And so too, we say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be seen as distinct sides, distinct faces, distinct angles, if you will, of something one. Or the simile of the Holy Trinity like three circles that are distinct, but which intersect. And in that place where they, where they are overlapping with each other, they are one with each other. And so too, we say, can Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier be seen in some ways, of course, distinct. While simultaneously never not at the same time in some way overlapping each other. Or, as in the example of the one compound, H2O, which is viewable and knowable in three different states, solid, ice, liquid, water, gaseous, steam, depending on the conditions and the context. And so too, since this image, God's one and only, not H2O-ness, but Godness, is knowable in three different, not states, but persons, depending on the conditions and the context. Images like that do make some sense of things, both three and one, right? Which, as I said, means that of course they have some limitations when applied to the fullness of God's Godness, but those images are nevertheless helpful in the way they can in some ways make the foreignness of this Trinity language seem not like completely foreign to us gibberish. Speaking of foreign, a new Trinitarian image occurred to me this week. At least it was new to me, which means it's been around for centuries. But it was new to me, so this was a good moment. And it came out of the fact that Kathy and Melissa and I are going to Germany this fall, where among other things, I'm going to be spending two weeks serving in a ministry called Wittenberg English Ministries in the city of Wittenberg-Lutherstadt, which was Martin Luther's home base in the Reformation, and where I will be um, four times a week leading English-speaking worship services, including preaching English sermons in the Castle Church, the Schlosskirche, famous for the 95 Theses, and also the City Church, the Stadtkirche, which was essentially Luther's home pulpit. I will let you know about that more later, but I'm pretty excited about it, I'll tell you that. Anyway, so yes, I'm going to be preaching in, uh, in English, leading worship in English, but I also wanted to brush up on my German one semester of which I had in the fall term of my freshman year at Central College 44 years ago. So it's all just right there. You know? <laughs> so I've been studying, studying, and if you like grammar, you're going to like this. 
If you hate grammar, you have my permission to ponder these beautiful Trinitarian images on the rarely ghost. That's what that wall behind the altar with his heart, man. You have my permission. We'll call you back in a couple of minutes. Okay, grammar readers. I was working with the German verb sein, which is the same as the English verb to be. Here's the thing about verbs like that in both English and German. We say the one and the same verb differently, and therefore it sounds and looks different, even though it's the same verb, depending on whether we are using it, this is kind of fun, in the first person, the second person, or the third person. And forming the verb into the correct form, depending upon the person we're talking about, is called conjugating the verb. Okay, if a few of you have switched to the wall, that's just fine. <laughs> so now, sticking with the English, the verb to be is conjugated in the first person singular, I am. But in the second person, you wouldn't say you am. You would rather conjugate it and say you are. And the third person, you wouldn't say he, she, or it are. You would conjugate it in the third person and say he, she, or it is. Are you with me? You didn't maybe know conjugate. That's what you do when you do it automatically. Got it? Well, then welcome to this brand new, at least brand new to me way of thinking about the Trinity that occurred to me this week. God, who's very much like a verb. When God is actively going about being God, for us and toward us and in us and among us, God is conjugated in three different ways. First person singular, Father. Second person singular, Son. And third person singular, Holy Spirit. All of which nevertheless simultaneously remain the very same verb. The very same very God of very God. It gets better. If you, if you just went to the wall, that's fine. <laughs> Furthermore, in both English and German, when you conjugate the verb to be in the plural form, you conjugate it in exactly the same way. Whether you're in the first person, second person, or third person. We are. You are. They are. All of that from the very same verb to be, which, and this is just as good as it gets, the verb to be, which turns out to be the verb God used when Moses asked God what God's name is. And remember what God said in the first person singular? I am. I gotta tell you, being kind of interested in how language works and being kind of interested in how God works, which is to say being, you know, kind of a nerd, I was excited to catch that thought. And then I even kind of spent several days just kind of hanging around with that thought, with that weird, nerdy kind of theological smile on my face. That thought that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct first, second, and third person conjugations of one and the same God, the plural congregation of which for all three persons is the same congregation. It's the word Trinity. Okay, wall stairs back. 
At which point I want to tell you that I have actually been theology, theology nerd in heaven this week because there wasn't just brand one brand new way of thinking about the Trinity that occurred to me, brand new to me anyway. Uh, there were actually two of them. Before I tell you the second one, I want to tell you that if you hate science, you now have my permission to ponder these beautiful Trinitarian images on the rare ghost, and I'll call you back in about three minutes. All right, science geeks. I, a few weeks ago, uh, heard a fascinating interview on NPR as I was driving to work on Sunday morning. It was an interview with, um, with Carlo Rovelli. The book he wrote is called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. Carlo Rovelli, um, like Sheldon Cooper uh, on TV's Big Bang Theory, is, is a theoretical physicist who, as I can tell from the interview, actually doesn't come across at all one bit like Sheldon Cooper of TV's Big Bang Theory, and who, though he's not a believer I, as such, I know this because I emailed him and told him I was going to be using him in the sermon. He replied very kindly and called me his brother, which I'm glad this was fun too. What I listened to, it got me thinking about theology, and especially it got me thinking about the Holy Trinity. Here's how that went. He said that in today's physics, things that we think of as things aren't thought of as things, but rather as events, which come into being come into existence and appear to us as things, when the tiniest things there are, particles that are called things like electrons and quarks, for example, come into relationship with each other and interact with each other. And so this pulpit is not an inert thing, but rather at its deepest level, this thing is bustling with activity as the most basic particles there are, the particles that are the building blocks of everything that there is, interact with each other and keep on interacting with each other to form the elements which form the compounds, which form wood, which form the thing which we now call a thing, called a pulpit. Quantum physicists have a formula which explains those particle level interactions and relationships that are always happening. They just, and this is kind of interesting, they don't actually understand exactly how and why that formula actually works. What they've just proven over and over again is that it works. What's more, even those basic particles themselves, physicists say, particles like electrons, for example, don't actually even exist in the sense of existence as we generally think of it, these electrons rather exist and in some way only exist when they are in a relationship. A relationship created and defined by the event or happening of an electron jumping from one orbit into another orbit, and that jump is called a quantum leap. Which takes us to this never-to-be-famous phrase of a Roger Leap. How beautiful is it? How perfect is it? How theologically nerdy fun is it? To think that the creator of a universe 
in which all things exist only in a relationship, is a God, the fullness of whose Godness exists as a relationship. A relationship for which theologians, like physicists, have a formula, our formula being one plus one plus one equals one, which equals three, which equals one, our formula also being one which the old theologians like physicists can't completely understand, except that, well, what we do understand is that understandable completely or not, it works. Okay, all people, back. Everything that exists, Physics says exists in relationships, even though we can't see or completely understand that. God, Christian theology says, being Trinitarian, exists as a relationship, even though we can't completely see or understand that. And we, theology goes on to say, do not fully or actually exist in the way that we are meant fully and actually to exist unless we are in a relationship with our Creator, a relationship which sin broke, a relationship which the sun's quantum leap into our orbit restored, a relationship which the Spirit's prodding ever calls us home to. And because God is not the God of only us, but of all people and of all things, the Spirit, too, reminds us that we are never fully home in a fully and healed relationship with God unless we are living, too, in a full and healed relationship with one another and with the earth from which we came and to which we shall return. Our Jewish forebears and cousins have a word for this wholeness of you being fully you that you were created to be by being healed and at peace in your relationship with God and with others and with the earth itself. The word is Shalom. Sisters and brothers, in the name of the Father and by the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Shalom. Be with you.